We're back to the topic of ecclesiology. My name is Dan. I'm with Ben. We're the teaching pastors of Life Fellowship in suburban Charlotte, North Carolina. And Ben, I promise you this time, I'm going to do my best to stay focused and not. <laughs> you I don't, don't even believe, believe you. me. You're all, he's the, ordered the caveats there. He's he's going to do his best. Like there's uh, he's, there's a lot of room I'm, here. I'm going to I'm going to stay on top. I'm going to stay on topic. Is like Dan saying, I'm going to be done at 42 <laughs> minutes on Sunday with my sermon. Oh. Like that's. Man. Yeah, the entire my, worship team knows that's not my happening. My ministry soulmate <laughs> just stabs me in the heart. You know it. Listen, with there a are smile some, on his face. Here, no, here's the thing about Dan. You don't know this about Dan. There, there are Sundays where you will preach two completely different sermons. I will. I, I'm serious. <laughs> yep. That people will be like, yep. like the first sermon, the first service will hear one sermon of Dan. And then the second service, Dan will go off and preach a completely different sermon. Same notes, people. Same <laughs> notes. My brain's very active. It's, it's longer, too, usually. We don't have to force people so out even, and get a room. Even though I preach service. twice as much as Dan, there's tw- there's about the same amount of sermons that are about equal. <laughs> He's doing the same amount of content prep. <laughs> you, should, you know what you should do? You should have me do that. And people will stay for both services and yeah. we count them twice. That we could do That's that. Good bad. I think some there. people will now be like, "Oh, I wonder what somebody's <laughs> going to preach second service." Because one of the things you, what's one of the things you always say to me after I preach or some of my sermons, I you there your sermons were so similar. Like you, you've yeah, said yeah, that yeah, to yeah. me. You're like, yeah. "How do you do that?" I'm like, "Well, I have a outline. How do you do that, <laughs> and I stick to my outline. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. I just don't always stick to it." So now I, that we have, see, wasted we have now right. gone one off track. Thirty seconds. All right. So ecclesiology, we're going to, yep. we're going to talk about things like church membership and church state and, and separation of church and state. Yep. Mm-hmm. Good topic. So let's mm-hmm. hit them. Yeah. So again, at the end of last episode, we talked about the church in Israel and these flow out of all these other things flow out from that foundation of understanding the nature of, of Israel and the church. So the first thing I think we should understand is the church is not the state and, and the, the church, because again, if people have a replacement theology that you know God's done away with Israel now the church replaces Israel all of those laws to the nation of Israel now apply to the church and this is where you get Christian nationalism or you know you briefly mentioned the whole idea of of um uh, theocracy and there are people today that believe that the church's role should be in 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 reforming and conforming well, government to the laws and the nature of the church. Well, and kingdom theologians literally believe that Christ won't return until, until we've established yeah, his kingdom. Yes, yeah. yes. And again, this is again where it leads into eschatology, post-millennialism. So we, I think the biblical view is that the church is not the state, that church should influence culture, the church, but, but, I think a couple things that Jesus makes clear is that his kingdom is not of this world. Mm-hmm. He says that in John 18. He says that in other places as well. But the whole idea is we are not to try to um, overtake governments to establish the kingdom. The kingdom is expressed through the church. And therefore, um, we can't just try to take over these little pockets of government and civil uh, um, government to, to express oh, this is what the church should be like. No, church should be the conscience of the state. Um, I also don't think, so you have one extreme where the Christians are about to take over the state. And then you have on the opposite end, you have the, you know, the Amish, that the church should be so void of any kind of influence in the world that we should completely separate ourselves mm-hmm. and not even worry about what happens to the state or civil government. I don't think that's healthy either. Right. Uh, because both Peter and Paul talk about issues of 
pr- submitting to to government, praying for your leaders. Um, but they also distinguish civil government from spiritual authority. There are times when Peter says to the Sanhedrin, it is more important for us to obey God rather than men. So therefore, when civil government and spiritual governance are at conflict, I'm always going to obey the word of God above human laws. That's just what it comes If there's ever a, where the, where the fork, you know, splits off, I'm not, if, if something's going to violate the word of God, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go along with, with culture or the state. Um, so I think that's really important. But again, Dan, books have been written about this. Huge, huge books. and But I, I think it, I'd love to do a whole episode or two on this in the future because the issue of separation of church and state is widely misunderstood mm-hmm. and wildly misunderstood mm-hmm. in this country. Mm-hmm. But it is really an important fundamental doctrine. Um, and it's it's the idea of separation of church and state goes to the Old Testament. The king was not allowed to go into the into the temple. Mm-hmm. And the high priest was not allowed to go into the palace. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a tension that always existed between the priest and prophets mm-hmm. and between the king. Yeah. To the point that occasionally the king would kill the priests and the prophets. Mm-hmm. And occasionally the priests and the prophets, priests and the prophets would say to the king, you lost it, dude. God's yeah. no longer on yeah. you. And next thing you know, they're, you know, eating grass and, yep. you know, all kinds of horrible things happening to them. But that is that is a framework yeah. on which some would suggest, not all, but some would suggest that the founders used to help us in this country. But the, the, the notion that America was so pluralistic in its formation that the church should have either a very diluted role or no role at all is inconsistent with the principles of democracy, which means Correct. a Christian population will elect Christian leaders. That's, yeah. that's to be expected. And that's not a violation of the separation of church and state. No, no. But but we don't want there to be one denomination preferred, which was the, 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 the state churches of Europe, which we were Correct. fighting against, yes. because then they would execute anybody who wasn't their denomination. Yeah, it, it, the, the whole church-state union of Europe, which is Christendom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't believe is biblical. Again, goes back to a, a over time, right around the the beginning of the fall of Rome, there was this merging of church and state. Mm-hmm. It really began with Constantinople. It was a very right? corrupt merging too. Let's yeah, be honest yeah. It was that. it was all of a sudden, you know, um priests priests and bishops yeah. were it was more of a political office than it was a spiritual office. And so you you have all these conciliatory movements within the medieval church um, or Roman Catholicism, and people would pop up every once in a while, like, we got to get back to the primitive church. Well, it's because the church had become so synonymous with worldly and government authority. And so, uh, yeah, when, when America was is this beautiful opportunity to separate um, governmental powers with spiritual authority, and for the most part of our of our heritage – our Christian heritage here in in the United States, we have flourished under that division. Where we have really seen it kind of go to the extremes now is where people say, you know, the uh, some of these left wing organizations are like, there should be no expression of anything right. spiritual in the public realm. That's a perversion of the of the standard that this church was found or that this country was founded on the separation of church and state. And once again, we see the danger of extremes. So the one extreme is there should be no religious expression at all. Mm -hmm. The other extreme is that a certain particular denomination should have preference or should be. be, And the early colonies had that problem because Pennsylvania was Quakers, Rhode Island was, you know, so, and they actually were putting Baptist pastors in jail 
That's the whole point of the starting of Rhode Island was that Baptist pastors could go and have freedom of religion there. And that's why Jefferson wrote those letters, which are not in the Constitution, about the Great Wall of Separation. But it was to protect the church from the state, not vice versa. But it was was born out of that. And because you and I both come from Baptist traditions in our background, um, we understand it because of the nature of the history that affected Mm -hmm. people that were of our philosophy. Um, But it's something that Christians ought to educate themselves about as they study study ecclesiology Mm -hmm. because there are, and I've got good friends who believe in a kingdom theology who are working toward the day when there is a Christian government, a Christian level of Christian nationalism that prepares the throne, so to speak, for Christ. It's a very also Western-centric philosophy, you know. So let me ask you, I I know we have so much to talk about, but I do want to ask you this. What is the difference between someone... Like in the Old Testament, you have these men like Daniel and Nehemiah that have governmental roles mm-hmm. and use these roles, They but they don't compromise their faith at all. And they actually use their, they leverage their, their, their position um, and their access to authorities to promote biblical ideals. Yeah, but they were promoting a worldview. And I yeah. think that, and many of the early founders, I mean, Jefferson was not an evangelical. No, no, he was, no, no. He was no, a deist. No, he was not and, a Christian. And Franklin, no. even though he held a general uh, Judeo-Christian worldview, was a, I mean, he was a philandering. Yeah, he, he no was not a, mor- he was not a moral person. No, no. So, but, so, but they had a worldview. Yeah. And one of the problems Christianity has had is we've refused to take, to, to, to do the, intellectual discipline to consistently promote and defend the rational strengths of a biblical Judeo-Christian worldview. And as a result, other forms of worldview have now dominated us. And now they're not only dismissing us, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to absolutely- Silence us, yeah. yeah. Not give us a seat at the table at all. Yeah. But that's why, that's why we read people like Lewis. That's why even Eugene, uh, not Eugene Peterson, um, the other Peterson- Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is so popular because even though he's not a professing believer, a lot of his philosophy has a Judeo-Christian leaning toward it. And and that's why we have, when we abdicated our place at those tables out of separatism and other different reasons, we lost a lot of ground. We will continue to do that unless we're willing to pay the intellectual price. Mm. Because we've lost the elite institutions, Harvard, Yale, all these were started in defense of the Judeo Christian uh, value yeah, they, system. They, they had a Christian yeah, mission. The glory to of them. God, truth, Veritas. So, so yeah. I just, I just think that there's a there's a practical outworking of this, and I do think there's a fine, there's a good tension there that we don't want to be Amish, but we also don't want to, you know, <laughs> take over the entire government. Like that's not our purpose. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, we spent a lot of time on that, but I think that that is an issue that. You've got to make sure that you have a biblical understanding of the church's role, the people of God within the state. Because here's the thing. It's going to fluctuate based on what state you're in. It looks complete. The church looks completely different in communist China than it does mm-hmm. here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so I just think that that's something that, of course, the word of God is our authority, gives us, helps us to know how to adapt to our our surroundings of what's what's there. So, okay. So after church and state, um, let's go to church governance and church government. Um, we talked a, 
couple episodes ago about pastors and deacons. Those are the offices. But how those offices are elected or chosen or where authority lies is up for major debate. So there's basically three forms of church government. And I know, Dan, we have recorded episodes on this before, so I don't want to spend too much time here. But essentially, you have three different kinds of church government, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, and Congregational. Now, I'm not talking about the denominations of Episcopal, you know, Episcopalian, um, but the whole idea of the Episcopal um, form of church government, it's very much, uh, so Church of England, Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, that's basically the or the Orthodox Church, where there is a singular bishop at the top of the pyramid that has primary authority, not not complete authority, because that's you know it's really hard to do. But but for the Pope, that is that's the ultimate bishop in the Episcopal government of the Catholic Church. And there's some degree of apostolic succession. Apostolic they would trace succession. it all the way back to the founders. Yes. Um, then you have within the Anglican Church, you have the Archbishop of Canterbury that that functions as the head of the church. Yes, there are under bishops you know, below them, but primarily that's the chief spokesman or the chief decision maker of the church. Um so there are denominations that have, you know, this Episcopalian form of church government. Um, then you have the Presbyterian form of church government. This is the idea that um, Episcopalian is based off of the Greek word episkopos, which is bishop. The Presbyterian form of church government is based off of the Greek word presbyter, which is elder. And the whole idea of the Presbyterian, again, I'm not talking about the denomination of them, but there is a lot of similarity they believe that there is a there's a there's a group of men or women um, that operates almost like an oligarchy in the church in a in a civil government that this this there's a board of of leaders that oversee the denomination and then there's a board of leaders oversees the the um kind of the the under groups and it goes to the session they call them sessions that oversee a church but it's always a group of people there's never one singular leader within a Presbyterian form of church government. There are just layers of groups of of men. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So those are pretty easy to understand. And then you get into congregational church government. And there are different forms of congregational church government, but these are most likely seen um, within free churches, non-denominational churches, Baptist churches. And there are the different forms of church government range from pure democracy that the, that the congregation votes on everything. Um, you can also have a, a congregational form of church government by which the congregation votes and selects elders or leaders or pastors to make the decisions. A form some, of republicanism. Sometimes there's a, the elders make some decisions, the congregation makes some decisions. There's just a, there's a very fluidness to this. Um, and, and sometimes you'll even have a con- and the most extreme is you'll have a congregation that will vote in a pastor, but the pastor acts as a mini pope, and the, he just basically just makes all the decisions for everything and everyone until that guy dies or moves away, and then they select another mini pope for themselves. So that's con- that's basically the three kinds of church government. Um, for us, we operate as a as an elder led church. There's a there's a group of men um, who lead the church here, um, but but that's that's how we do it here at Life Fellowship. So yep. that's pretty 
pretty easy. Yeah, and there's always variations and sub-variations. Yeah. And also there are those who hold a complementarian position versus those who hold yeah. an egalitarian. Egalitarian would put men and women as equally, mm -hmm. have equal access to most, if not all of the offices, yeah. where a complementarian believes that uh, there is a difference that complements each of the two genders, but that God primarily placed men in the leadership yes. of the church and home. Yes, um, And then I think that probably that we have time to cover one more thing. And let's just talk about church discipline. If we have to bleed over in the next episode, we can. But church discipline is this idea of it's very rarely practiced anymore. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that if you are a part of a local church, that if you do something, we see this played out in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We also see uh, forms of it, I want to say Matthew chapter 18, mm -hmm. uh, when Jesus talks about what to do with people uh, who are rebelling or not unforgiving. But the idea is there's a, if someone is living an open and rebellious and willful sin, that the church, especially the leadership of the church, has a responsibility to confront people and to call them to repentance and to holy living, okay? Mm -hmm. And if someone does not do that, then you can exercise church discipline on them. So, for example, the, the example, the, the most prominent example in Scripture is that example, as I mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when there, there was, Paul addresses the church and says, there is something morally going on in, the, in your church that is, even the world looks at and says, man, that's messed up. And the whole idea was, there was a man who was sharing an open relationship sexually with his stepmom. Um, and it was a perversion. It's a sexual perversion. And, and Paul addresses, you know, warn them, address this. And if he does not repent, then you've got to kick him out of the church because the church is supposed to be an expression of the body of Christ, the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, all of these things. And so if someone's in there living a lifestyle that is contrary to the life of Jesus, then you've got to do something to correct that. So it, the whole point is to maintain the purity of the church. And I'm telling you, that sounds, that can be very legalistic at times because that can be, what, yeah, what rises to the yeah. level of but but it's, but but it's not it's not just that it's also to restore your brother who's or sister who's in rebellion. So it's not just about the church; it's also about the individual who's walking away. You love them enough to say, "Man, I don't want to see you go down this road where it's going to cause you greater pain and anguish and harm and you know the the shrapnel of sin that just happens when we when we go our own way and and rebel against God's word and His ways, and so. Church discipline is meant to rescue the the brother or sister in Christ who's going down a wrong path, but also to show the church we take sin seriously, yep. we take holiness seriously, and um, so. Anyways, those are all things that, that. But I would also say that church discipline isn't reserved just for behaviors, but also beliefs, because yes. you see you see that, and you know, we're told to mark those who cause dissension. We were also told watch out for false teachers' worlds. Yep. Uh, even there was. You know the counsel that that Paul called for Peter, mm. um, and that Peter, you know, was running a little astray, and yeah. and called him back to accountability. So I think sometimes we we re I believe that there needs to be a resurgence of church discipline. The problem is today, 
first of all, we're scared to death of lawyers and being sued. Mm. Uh, we also have a mentality that kind of that kind of says, well, if I don't get my way, I'm quitting or I'm going to go somewhere else. And then we also have this fluidity between churches, which is something yeah. you know it's yeah. bigger than our ability to talk about on a podcast. Yeah. But so, well, okay, you don't like me at this church. You don't like the fact that you know I'm living in sin with somebody. I'll just go over to this other church where they don't know me, and I can transfer my membership. Nobody asks any questions, and they're just so happy to have two new people in their church. They just let them come on the, in. You know, that is the downside of not having strong denominationalism within mm. culture, mm, yep. because it used to be the time when people belonged to a denomination, and even within the denomination, there was shared values and shared accountability, even between congregations that were fit the denomination. Like a hundred years ago, you would never think about going from a Methodist church to a Presbyterian church. That just, there was no, really no such thing as non-denominations or non-denominational churches. So with the rise of non-denominational churches, um, it has allowed the free movement of people that are saying, well, if you're going to tell me that, you know, you're going to, you know, exercise your discipline on me, I'll just go to the church around the corner. And I remember doing this years ago with some people in my church. And I called a pastor who I said, hey, there's a situation of some people in my church that they're under church discipline. And I just want you to be aware that they are attending your church. And Mm -hmm. their response to me was, yeah, we're not, we don't really want to get in all that kind of stuff. And so if they want to come here and, you know, I was like, okay, like I, I try to do my part in showing the love that because again what matters most this person's walk with Jesus matters yeah. um because if they part of church discipline is, is to show is this person really a believer yeah. if they are just continue living in open rebellion and sin and they're like I don't care if you whatever then that reflects something about their heart towards God and his word. And so anyways, the, you know, the, the other thing is it also shows though that we don't value church membership the way we ought no. to and should. And that's, this is a whole other episode and I get it. <clears throat> but even within church discipline, there was an idea that churches would help resolve conflicts yeah. and, and keep order. Yeah. And, and that was like, don't sue each other. Don't go to the courts. That's a bad yeah. testimony mm. and it should be able to resolve. But none of that works if we do not respect the leadership of yeah. the church, the authority of the church, and willfully submit ourselves to that. Now, I've actually done conflict resolution through our church. Before we went into the resolution, and I was a pastor, mm-hmm. but before we went into the resolution time with the elders that were that were part of it, we both agreed whether we like your decision or don't like your decision, we abide by your decision. Yeah. That's a character issue. That's right. It was very difficult. I happened to win that one, but I was fully prepared that if the elders had said, no, Dan, you were wrong, to ask for forgiveness mm. and to restore it and to make things mm. right. Mm. Uh, we've lost something in the health of the church when we've kind of abandoned that. Absolutely. So, I agree. Well, wow. we That time went by quickly. Mm-hmm. As they always do, because yeah. Ben, you're just, uh, you're just so fun to talk He's to. He's just so good. I'm He's just so smart. Good. Yeah. Keep, keep Keep it coming, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thank you all for listening to us at Life Talks. I hope you'll share us with your friends and neighbors. Uh, if you would, uh, tell us, tell, tell others about us on social media or pass it on to your friends with a link or, or, or whatever. Always, if you have questions, you'd like to see us hit a topic or two, we often take these into consideration. And all you've got to do is just uh, send us an email at lifetalks at lifecharlotte.com. But as always, thank you so much for listening uh, to us here at Life Talks. You've been listening to Life Talks. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so you never miss a new episode. Share this podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to let your friends and family know about Life Talks. We'd love to hear from you as well. 
So leave a comment and let us know your thoughts on this episode or any other topics we've discussed. Life Talks is a ministry of Life Fellowship in Cornelius, North Carolina. For more information on Life Talks or Life Fellowship, visit lifecharlotte.com or you can find us on Facebook at Life Fellowship Charlotte.